Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor for Providence. And today I am talking with Josh Walker, who is the president of the Japan Society. And we're going to be talking about Japan for a little bit today. In the past couple of episodes, we have talked about other countries in East Asia, including China and Hong Kong. And to kind of continue that trend, we're talking about some more countries in the area. So first off, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's always great to be back, particularly uh, with this pandemic. It's just good to, to be connected and talk about these uh, important issues as we have some pretty big anniversaries coming up in Japan. Right. Well, one is the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, which happened 75 years ago, August 6th. So right now we're recording this on August 5th, and we're going to try to get this podcast out as soon as possible. And yeah, we also have the uh, Nagasaki anniversary. Are there any others that I'm missing? No, you got it. You know, you've got Hiroshima, August 6th. You got Nagasaki three days later, August 9th. And then the end of World War II and Japan's full capitulation to the U.S. on August 15th. So it's kind of a, a big week, particularly for Japan. I think Americans are probably more focused on their own political environment. But it, from a foreign policy point of view, 75 years since the end of World War II and kind of what uh, that the kind of post-World War II environment, that liberal international order so-called, uh, means and whether uh, we're, we're at another inflection point 75 year, years later will be interesting to talk about. Yeah, well, it's not uncommon for Americans to be focused on our domestic issues <laughs> all the time. Absolutely. In fact, I think with the only time we really talk about foreign issues is when it applies to our domestic politics. I think that's absolutely right. So my first question is, the last time you spoke for Providence, you were in the process of leaving your position at Eurasia Group to become the president of the Japan Society. So could you describe what the society does? Absolutely. So, you know, back then when I was speaking at both the conference for, uh, for Providence and also uh, doing other things, uh, I was really coming at it from a geopolitical risk uh, point of view as the head of Japan and kind of global initiatives over at uh, Eurasia Group. Uh, but moving to Japan society, it's a different world. Uh, we're uh, the largest and the leading uh, nonprofit and resource focused on U.S.-Japan relations. We've been around since 1907. It's headquartered in New York. It's had some pretty notable uh, leaders, uh, including John D. Rockefeller III, that gave us the current uh, space, the, the office that we occupy uh, in this beautiful building right across the street from the U.N., uh, and have really been uh, the kind of the, the beating heart of the U.S.-Japan relationship, particularly when uh, back in uh, that period of time after World War II, there was a real need to repair the public image of both Japan and also U.S.-Japan more broadly, talking about the arts, the culture, the history, uh, but even the business technology and policy and also uh, education. We have the largest Japanese language center outside of Japan. Uh, we also have the largest Japanese language film festival that we just wrapped uh, last week uh, in North America. So we do a lot of cool things, and it's a part of who I am, as you know, having grown up as a uh, son of a Southern Baptist missionary kid. Uh, in Japan, where my parents have been faithfully serving for almost four decades now. So uh, it really brings the best of, of, of a lot of what I bring to the table. So uh, it's a great opportunity. I'm excited uh, to be the 20th president up here. And as the United States focuses more attention on East Asia, what geopolitical role or global role does Japan play as an ally and partner in the region? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think you know, the, 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 starting with the basics, it's obvious uh, that Asia is, is having a moment, right? It's not just about COVID-19 and the response of the way Asian nations have dealt with it versus those of us in the West, particularly the U.S., have not been able to deal with it. And we can have a whole debate of whether that's because they, they wear masks and it's more normal in terms of culture. But I think the larger geopolitical question about America's role in Asia, it's clear that we're moving from a transatlantic century into a transpacific century and that Asia, which represents over half of the world's population and uh, economic output is becoming this outsized, important continent for every country, particularly the United States. We have the uh, you know kind of great advantage 
of, of going from sea to shining sea. So we kind of have shifted from the East Coast and the Atlantic space where we always were looking to Europe and particularly Britain as one of our closest allies, now increasingly looking to Asia. And when you look at where the big flash points or major conflicts of the future are going to be, not just US-China, which is all over the news every day, uh, but also on the Korean Peninsula and also uh, in places uh, in the Indo-Pacific, Japan plays an outsized role, particularly because of our history, that 75 years of a, of a shared alliance that we've had since the end of World War II after the end of occupation, uh, you know, Douglas, Douglas MacArthur. Um, Japan plays a really important role because it is the third largest economy in the, role, uh, in the, in, in the world. It has a lot to offer, offer and it also has a, a different posture and a different set of ambitions uh, in the current environment than it did 75 years ago as this defeated uh, enemy that uh, some have described as having embraced defeat by not having a military force that I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. And speaking of not having a military force, so Japan's constitution says the country renounces both war as a sovereign right and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international dispute. So Japan cannot maintain land, sea, or air forces and instead, they have the self-defense forces, which my understanding is the difference between an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. It's kind of a gray area. But how has this arrangement either helped and frustrated the United States? Yeah, no, that's very diplomatic uh, to say it's, it's a gray area because really, you're right. To, to be on offense or defense, particularly when it comes to weapons, is a very, um, a very gray area. The way, the way uh, Japan has dealt with this is, is, is kind of the debate about Article 9 of the Constitution, which lays out exactly what you said, which is that it's a renunciation of kind of military aggression, which is obviously a direct outgrowth of what happened in the 1930s, which was a rise of fascism and a militaristic a domination of Japanese domestic politics by the military, which led to um, World War II and, and kind of the conquering and, and the atrocities that took place both in Manchuria, China, but also obviously in Korea that we still hear about and still have repercussions between uh, the Republic of Korea and Japan. Uh, but really, uh, you know, the self-defense forces is a euphemistic name because um, over time, uh, particularly in the contemporary environment, and particularly under Shinzo Abe, who's the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history, he's made it very clear that he thinks Article 9 needs to be reimagined. And uh, the, the way that Article 9 reads is pretty explicit, as you said, that, you know, it basically renounces the use of force. And, and it basically says we're not going to go anywhere outside of our territory. But in a world in which uh, threats kind of emanate uh, from overseas, um, how can you renounce that? How, how can you simply wait? Is it really just you wait until somebody hits you with military force, and then you have to go back? What happens if uh, we're talking about nuclear weapons? What if you're talking about cybersecurity threats? Like, what does that mean? And so I think there's been a real um, reckoning in Japan. And what I, what I would say about the way this has worked in Japan is the law has remained in place. The Constitution of Japan has remained more or less unchanged since Douglas MacArthur put it in place and left back in 1952. Um, but the way and the practice of, of the legal norms, the kind of the justification, the way in which the Japanese diet, which is the Congress, and also the, the Ministry of Defense, which only became a ministry, by the way, in the last decade, uh, has really been dealing with guidelines of engagement for the self-defense forces, have really been uh, changed. And, and to your point about how America has been frustrated, I think America would love to see Japan throw off uh, all of the kind of restraints that it currently has, because we don't worry about Japan as a military force. You know, over the last 75 years, Japan has clearly demonstrated itself that it is, is, a, is a force for good and a force for peaceful prosperity uh, in the world and in the region. When you think about who contributes the most uh, to the UN and to development around the world, Japan is certainly in the top uh, ranks of those countries. And clearly, when it comes to military adventurism, it doesn't 
A, have the capacity, nor does it have the desire. And I think there's a real pacifist streak that runs in Japan where people remember what happened 75 years ago when uh, the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, what uh, World War II really led to in terms of cost, maybe even better than uh, the way Americans still remember that, because it's easier to remember a war that you lost than a war that you won. And so um, I think that there is a feeling in America, and particularly in this administration, the Trump administration, that Japan should do more. It, it is the third largest economy. It should, it should play a larger role, and particularly the American military forces that are protecting Japan and the nuclear umbrella that we've provided Japan uh, should be compensated higher. And so the debate about how much of the American forces should be paid for by Japan has become a pretty contentious issue. And it's something that's ongoing uh, and everyone is watching, particularly in a presidential year like this one. And last week, it was reported that lawmakers in Japan are pushing for the country to have the right to strike missile launch sites in North Korea and China. And so what are the prospects of this change happening? And can we expect any other constitutional changes? And do the people of Japan support these kinds of moves? Yeah, you know, I mean, headlines are misleading. When I, when I saw some of these headlines, whether in Reuters or Wall Street Journal, it had that uh, headline that Japan was going to change and have the first strike capability. And there were pictures of these missiles. You know, when you actually look at what happened, this was basically an exchange that took place between the Minister of Defense, Taro Kono, answering questions from uh, an opposition diet member. The question was simply posed, you know, would Japan be able to strike other countries? And the answer was yes, if we thought there was an imminent threat. So if North Korea specifically uh, was about to launch one of its uh, ballistic missiles at Japan and there was evidence of it, would Japan be able to go in and, and kind of knock that out? That would be a defensive posture, we would all agree, right? In terms of, you know, you're about to launch it, you've got the code ready to go we're going to take it out. That, that would be something that we would all think would be within the rights of self-defense. Um, but that is, in fact, striking uh, first. It is striking another country. Uh, so that would uh, you know, kind of change the posture of Japan. But I think that the, the bottom line is Japan has to be prepared in a world that it lives in a very difficult neighborhood where you've got not just North Korea, which is the most egregious uh, transgressor of international order, but you've also got Russia and China. Uh, and you've got other, uh, you know, non-state actors that are there. Japan has to assume the worst and it needs to prepare for it. So, you know, I think that the prospects of changing Article 9 are not uh, changing anytime soon. I think it's the implementation, the, the getting the Japanese people open to the idea that the world is such a dangerous place. This is really a, a Hobbesian uh, world in which we live and we need to really uh, strike back at the jungle that, that's going to attack us and that we can't always expect the United States to just be there to have to just to, to protect us first. America will always be there, but America is not going to go first. I don't think America is going to uh, eliminate a threat immediately because that isn't in our national interest. Japan needs to take ownership of that. And so I think the government in Japan, particularly Prime Minister Abe, who's currently um, experiencing very low poll numbers because of uh, the COVID outbreak and because he's been somewhat quiet uh, as of recent, and particularly given what's happened with the Tokyo Olympics that we can talk about. But I think that the prospects of it happening in the short term are very low. I think really there needs to be a, a real mandate for change. One of the things that Abe has gotten in trouble is every time he's really pushed on Article 9 changes, a lot of people have accused him of being too uh, nationalistic. And there's still a taboo in Japan of being too, too overtly uh, military focused, even when it comes to military planning. So I think there's still a culture that needs to be worked through. Japan is a consensus driven society that needs to have these conversations in a more harmonious way. And previously, some have argued that America's alliances with both Japan and South Korea have helped create stability in the region. So is this true? And or let me rephrase that. Is it still true? And why should Americans care about these alliances? 
Yeah, it absolutely has been true. When you look at the history between Japan and South Korea, it was actually a pretty good story. There were horrible things that happened during war. Obviously, Japan had occupied Korea for a period of time. Uh, but afterwards, there was a there was a treaty and, and Japan and Korea, both as allies of the U.S. and also market driven uh, democracies and economies, particularly in the 80s and 90s, uh, really were working together. And it was much easier for Americans to have these two allies where American forces uh, were, were based mostly with the army side in South Korea, obviously, given the history of the Korean War, and mostly on the Navy, Marine and, and kind of Air Force side in Japan, given the archipelago. It was kind of a nice compliment. But increasingly, um, because the U.S. has been absent from the scene and has not been playing as strong of a role, the, the Japanese and Koreans have been going back and forth. It, a lot of it has to do with domestic politics, right? It's always popular in South Korea to blame the Japanese for everything. And uh, the, the, the comfort women issue has always been a tricky one for both the Japanese and Koreans to settle. And even though there had been agreement before, uh, you know, different leaders came in and they had different motivations. And so I think the Japanese are just frustrated. And there's a real what we, what we call for Korea fatigue in Japan and a real feeling in, in Korea that the Japanese haven't really uh, atoned for their, the sins in the same way they would like. And I think really, uh, you know, you can kind of pin this directly to American leadership and Americans not being as actively involved. And um, I think that really why Americans need to care about this is uh, if things got bad, and let's say that Korea decided that its own economic interests no longer aligned with the U.S. and they'd rather align with China and, and Korean forces, American forces in Korea were to leave, there's really no place for them to go other than to, to, to Japan. And if there were to be an attack in the neighborhood, you would need coordination among our allies, particularly Japan and Korea, which are the two largest economies and two largest uh, bulwarks against uh, Chinese, Russian, North Korean uh, kind of aggression. And so um, it, it's really a force multiplier is the way I think about this. Korea and Japan are force multipliers, not just with their own uh, you know, military and self-defense forces, but also in terms of having a forward posture where um, we have our assets uh, stationed there. You know, you've got the 7th Fleet that's actually headquartered out of Yokosuka, Japan. It's the only outside of America uh, fleet that you have stationed there. And you've got the similar uh, kind of situation with our forces in uh, Korea that are under the UN umbrella still, given that the Korean War is still technically ongoing. So until there's some type of agreement, um, we really do need our, our South Korean and Japanese allies, not just to get along with us bilaterally, but to really make sure that trilateral relationship is working, which it was up until a couple of years ago. And things have just really taken a nosedive. And, and America's really been absent on that stage, which is just unfortunate in a lot of different ways. And what are the prospects of you know, China and South Korea moving closer together? Like, do we see any evidence of that going on now? Yeah, I think we see a lot of evidence of that. You know, when you think about China's posture during uh, this last year, and particularly in COVID, um, it really has been trying to convince everyone that they're the victims in the world and that kind of the U.S. Uh, U.S. as a superpower is a real threat to these other countries. And there is a receptive audience to that. You know, when you think about public opinion, you know, Japan is very um, both dependent, but also favorable towards America. And that's independent of Donald Trump as president, which obviously leads to a series of to political conversations. But in South Korea, that's not the case. There is there is this streak of anti-Americanism in South Korea that's kind of been fostered and uh, by South Korean leadership. And Moon Jae-in, obviously, uh, who, who, who obviously has his own political problems at home. Um, and I think that the Chinese have been playing a much stronger hand in domestic politics because they, they're closer. They, they seem to have a much more aggressive disinformation campaign that they're waging in Korea. And certainly with North Korea, the whole discussion between uh, the U.S. and North Korea, which was a big focus of uh, the Trump administration in the first half of the administration, uh, and still you can't rule it out in terms of an October surprise where, you know, Trump could get desperate enough that he would do anything to, to, to find a way to, to make peace with his buddy in uh, Pyongyang. I think that's a, that's a real, uh, real threat. And that, that directly leads to 
kind of a schism between the U.S. Uh, and South Korea, if not done correctly. It's always been a challenging relationship. And then when you add in the tensions with Japan and you add in uh, Chinese aggressive behavior and kind of their uh, public diplomacy campaign that they're waging against us, um, it is kind of a recipe for disaster in the future. And tensions, as we were talking about with China, like so tensions between the U.S. and China have increased significantly during the Trump administration. So we have the trade war. Uh, Later, we have oppositions to technology companies like Huawei. And then this past week, TikTok, even though right now TikTok is kind of up in the air as to looks like Microsoft might get it. Um, And then we also have the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the, you know, the China propaganda and then uh, the focus on China there. So how has Japan fit into this geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China? And are they getting caught in the crossfire? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I wish more policymakers were talking about because Japan is absolutely our most critical ally in this confrontation. It's clear that we've moved from an engagement uh, policy with China uh, to one of confrontation. You know, Mike Pompeo's speech at the Nixon Library spoke volumes both symbolically but also with what he said. And, and you know, clearly the last 40 years of engagement policy with China um, has not led to what many people had hoped for. I don't think any of us had hoped that there would be a free and democratic China, but I do did do think that many of us had hoped that, particularly with economic interdependency, uh, China would uh, kind of you know adapt a little bit more to the world order and, and not try to set up per- parallel structures like they've done across uh, you know its uh, Belt and Road Initiative and, and in its own near abroad. So I think Japan is really being caught between making a choice uh, with its closest security ally, the United States, and its closest economic market in China. And increasingly, the Japanese are taking America's side. Not necessarily uh, because the administration has been very uh, suave or sophisticated or has swagger on its diplomacy, but because it sees its own national interest tied up. I think, you know, when you think about the rivalry with China, you know, one of the things that we talked a lot about at Eurasia Group was how there are different levels of this. When it comes to the economic level, uh, the U.S. and China can compete, but still find ways of having win-win structures. When it comes to diplomacy, there are still ways that the U.S. and China can compete around the world, but still find win-win. It's on geotechnology in the areas you just mentioned about Huawei and TikTok and the 5G network and internet security, where it's really a zero-sum game. It's either American or Chinese companies that are going to get the business. And if you are on a Chinese network, can we ever believe that your, uh, your, your privacy and your data will be protected? And I think Japan has come to that same realization and kind of really been supporting the U.S. side and trying to find ways of working. So on the geotechnology side, I think that Japan is trying to figure out how it can work with American technology companies, largely in Silicon Valley, to find ways of partnering. You know, Japan used to be this big technology giant in the 80s and 90s with all the names that we know from Sony to NEC to, to Panasonic, et cetera. Those companies are not in the same tech space that the Googles or the Apples or the Facebook or Amazons are in or the Microsofts for that matter. So I think it is increasingly uh, finding itself uh, aligning more with the U.S. The real kind of wild card here, and when you talk about being caught in the crossfire, it's not that Japan is being caught in the crossfire, but it is finding itself in a difficult global space because particularly our European allies are frustrated with the Trump administration specifically and thinking that Trump and his team is being uh, too kind of... um, simplistic. It's very black and white with China and the U.S. right now. And particularly with COVID, um, you know, this would have been an opportunity to come together. COVID is something that doesn't see nationality or, or race or anything else. And so rather than calling this the China virus or whatever else you want to call it, uh, this could have been an opportunity to come together. But instead, it's become a dividing line. And, and unlike in the Cold War, where we were on the free side and kind of 
uh, they were on the bad side. Increasingly, China's painting itself in a much better way of saying, look, like, don't you want alternative to an American-led order? We can help you figure out ways of getting cheaper technology, cheaper internet. And a lot of people say, we don't care about the future ramifications. For today, China's giving us a better deal. So I think that's where Japan is, is really getting caught uh, between the United States and Europe and some of our other traditional allies and is really finding it more difficult. So uh, Japan is playing more of a bridging role than it ever has. And I think Japan's own independent national interest and its own foreign policy is playing a bigger role that sometimes I don't think those in Washington fully appreciate because we're so used to looking at Japan like our little brother. And what is the uh, opinion of the Japanese people of both like China and the United States? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it's been changing as of late. You know, if you would ask me this question before COVID-19, I think it was very clear that people were souring on China. And really, there was, you know, Japan has been going through close to a 20 to 30 year period of, of, of kind of uh, relations getting more and more frosty because there has been a feeling since uh, the hosting of the World Cup back in the 2000s uh, that China just doesn't doesn't respect rule of law and doesn't really uh, want to work with others. And so whether it's in the South China Sea or the Senkaku Islands that have led to major flashpoints, or whether it's privacy or Japanese companies trying to do business in China, it's been a pretty bad experience for Japan. So I would say that the China hawks have been on the ascendancy in China for a very long time, much, m- much more, uh, you know, at least over the last couple of decades, as opposed to the US, where really it's only been in the last couple of years under the Trump administration, there's been a real consensus that uh, China is a problem and that we need to confront China and kind of uh, with force. And so I think opinions in Japan have, have largely been fairly positive of the U.S. Uh, and really, they've been independent of the president's personality. When you think about last year, which you know, brought in a brand new Japanese emperor and this idea of Reiwa, you know, Donald Trump went to Japan two times in the period of close to three months, right? going to meet the emperor for the first time. He was the first uh, leader, head of state to meet the new Japanese emperor. And then he was back there for the G20 summit in Osaka. And you know, Prime Minister Abe and Donald Trump have, have a bromance of sorts where they've gotten along very well, particularly on the golf course. Uh, Abe was the first leader to meet with Trump when he was uh, the president-elect in the Trump Towers back in November uh, of 2016. So, you know, I think there's a lot of goodwill that's been built up on a personal level. The real question is, how does that lead uh, uh, to, from a country level? And I think COVID-19 has dampened the, the, the enthusiasm for the U.S. because they're watching in horror as uh, a country the size and the power of the United States has not been able to deal with what, from their perspective, uh, obviously is a bad outbreak in a pandemic, but the numbers are just, the scale is so off. It, it, it's clear that COVID-19 found America's Achilles heel. And you know because we don't have a nationalized or public healthcare system that works in the same way, uh, you know we've had uh, you know, fights between state and local governments and the federal government, and the response has just been lacking in every different way. And the difference between the way Japan has handled this and where there's about, you know, there's about a thousand or so dead versus the United States, where we're, we're well over 150,000. It's just it's, it's just it's so hard uh, to kind of keep a straight face and not just hold your head in shame with, with the way that we're being perceived around the world as Americans today, including in Japan. Yeah. So speaking about the coronavirus as a comparison, I pulled up the numbers here. And so Japan has had around 40,000 cases. In comparison, uh, the state that I grew up in, Mississippi, has 62,000. And uh, Japan has 1,000 deaths. Mississippi has 1,700 deaths. So as a comparison of how some of the different countries are doing, of course, Mississippi is a population of a little less than 3 million in Japan. What is Japan's population? Depending on when you count it, because of how quickly it's going down, but it's well over 100 million. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, literally 
um, you know, a 30, a 30 times difference between those two. And to see, you know, a state in America like Mississippi, uh, you know, exceed Japan is just, you know, the scale is just, it's hard to fathom. And my understanding is that Abe, as you had mentioned earlier, Abe has kind of managed the relationship with Donald Trump pretty well. And if I'm not mistaken, like Japan wasn't hit with the same level of tariffs as other trading partners. So is that accurate or have I missed something there? And uh, then uh, like, is there a fear of a future trade war? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, Abe has done a really good job of managing Donald Trump. There have been times that Donald Trump has said some uh, pretty egregious things about Japan, particularly as a candidate. He has a very clear viewpoint on Japan, kind of eating America's lunch, some of the same things he said about China. But in practice and in terms of what they've done, you know, they were able to do a first round free trade agreement between the U.S. and Japan that helped Japan uh, be exempted from some of the the tariffs and some of the the trade war uh, rhetoric that, that the Trump administration has waged on other countries, particularly China, but even allies around the world. Um, and so I think that Abe has really successfully, single-handedly, from a personal point of view, managed Donald Trump in a way that few have uh, fully appreciated. And I think it really plays into the anxiety in Japan about what happens this year in a presidential election, because there is a general feeling in Japan, uh, historically at least, that most of the strongest relationships that Japan has ever had have been with Republican presidents. You can go back to Nakasone and Reagan. You can go back to Koizumi and George W. Bush. But there's kind of a, the feeling that the general Republican Party has always been more uh, on the national security side, which kind of pre preeminates and puts Japan in a privileged place when you think about the theater of major conflicts, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. Um, so I think there is this fear uh, that if there were to be a change, you know, just because, you know, I think Trump in some ways is, is, a, is an anomaly. He's more of a populist than a traditional Republican candidate, as we know. Uh, but for this election, what does it mean if, if there were to be a Joe Biden a president in January? And so I think the Japanese are looking at this and, you know, I think there are pros and cons. It's not as, it's not as black as white as it might be for some of our European allies that would love nothing more, particularly Angela Merkel and Germans, to, to see uh, the Trump administration come to an end and kind of reset the relationship in the way they believe uh, the United States uh, should behave on the international scene. So how do you think U.S. relations with East Asia and Japan might change if Joe Biden becomes president? You know, I think that there will be a, a kind of a reestablishment of multilateralism and kind of institutions. I think under the Trump presidency, it's really been a personalized diplomacy. So for Japan, as I've mentioned, that worked out fairly well because Japan understood early on, and Abe in particular, seemed to have Trump's number. In fact, a lot of uh, regional allies, including and then even European allies, were coming to Abe to say, how do we deal with Trump? Because early on, people like Justin Trudeau of Canada or uh, Emmanuel Macron of France seemed to have the same experience with Trump, but then something always ended up breaking those relationships. Something always made President Trump mad. Uh, Abe stayed in his good graces. And so um, the question is, if, if uh, Joe Biden becomes president, uh, will there need to be a new prime minister to reset relations with Japan, even if things go back uh, to a more, uh, dare I say, normalized uh, diplomacy or cadence there where things like the South Korea-Japan relationship will have more uh, oversight, you'll have more U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific. You know, the one thing about um, the Trump administration is particularly in the Indo-Pacific, they have clearly made this a priority. So there are initiatives that are ongoing. Uh, there is a close personal relationship between Trump and Modi of India and Abe of Japan. And so it won't be as extreme as the change you'll see in Europe. But I do think the Japanese are thinking long and hard about this. And I think the question is, you know, even if Joe Biden becomes president, I don't think the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP that was negotiated under Obama, will come back overnight, which will be a real uh, problem for the Japanese because they keep on wanting America as the largest economy in the world to join. And so 
I think that relations in general on the official level uh, will will kind of be reset and, and the opportunity will be there. But really, the proof will be in the pudding in terms of how the different cabinet level secretaries and the different people that come back in are going to actually operationalize this. Because I think a lot of our East Asian allies have gotten used to dealing with Trump and they kind of are used to dealing with some of the, the more personal and Twitter uh, diplomacy that they've been dealing with. And finally, like, so Japan was supposed to host the Olympics this summer, but obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. And so it's supposed to happen next year sometime. And how has this delay affected Japan? And what role can the Olympics play in Japan's global relations? Yeah, I know it's a real it's a real uh, a bummer in a lot of different ways. I was supposed to personally be in Japan right now to, to celebrate the Olympics. You know, this is the second time that Japan would be hosting the Summer Olympics, the first time being in 1964. And I think people underestimate just how important Olympics are because Olympics are really a coming out party in a global stage. You know, I was reading an article recently in the New York Times that basically said uh, that up until the 2008 uh, Summer Olympics in Beijing, which was really this coming out party for China as a global power, 1964 was the most, it had the most impact on Tokyo uh, and, and on Japan of any other Olympics in history. And the reason they, they focused on that is if you go to Japan and Tokyo today, all of the architecture you're going to see is basically from that period. Because remember, as we celebrate the 75th year of the end of World War II, it also means that all of Tokyo was decimated with fire bombings during the war because uh, America wanted uh, you know, complete and utter submission. And so Tokyo was a destroyed city. And so from 1945 until 1952, uh, the occupation of Japan, and then from 1952 to 1964, Japan was rebuilding itself. And so they used the Olympics as an opportunity to showcase things like the bullet train, the famous Shinkansen, or all of the architectural wonders that you think of uh, when you go to Japan. A lot of them are connected to the Olympics, including subways and, and some of the big uh, you know, towers that are there. And so I think that 2020 would be a lot different. You know, in 1964, Japan couldn't really uh, come out of the gate in terms of, you know, being rah-rah militaristic and national Japan. But 2020 was really to show that Japan uh, is back on a global stage and it's really stepping out of the shadow of the World War II uh, legacy, which 1964 embraced in some ways. And so I think that it was a real missed opportunity. But of course, with the way COVID is, I don't know if anybody would want to go. Uh, we can't travel. American citizens aren't really allowed into Japan right now because of travel restrictions. So hopefully when the Olympics kick off next year, 2021, this might be the first global event uh, that we're able to celebrate, assuming that we have the vaccine sometime at the beginning of next year. And this will be a real opportunity to kind of celebrate. And the one thing Japanese really do well, there's a term in Japanese, omotenashi, which means Japanese hospitality. It's not the aggressive Southern hospitality that probably you and I are used to, where you, you kind of pull up a chair on the, on the porch and get a sweet tea. And if you don't eat something, grandma's going to be mad at you. It's really uh, kind of watching to see what you appreciate. And then without even saying anything, without any verbal exchange, kind of the, the unwritten hospitality of welcoming the world to Japan. And I think uh, it's really an opportunity for Japan to showcase its global relations. When you think about Tokyo as this global hub, increasingly as China becomes more uh, of, a, of a rival to the U.S., I think Tokyo is going to become a place of, uh, of respite. And also Japan is this island of stability, whether it's from COVID or whether it's from populism and politics. Uh, Japan is a pretty well-functioning uh, place. And so as a result, it's an opportunity for the world to gather, to celebrate as a human spirit, defeating uh, this horrible pandemic that's really a once-in-a-hundred-year uh, effect. But I think, uh, you know, it, it's an opportunity for Japan to take that rightful place. You know, I, I've made the comment before that uh, the last three Olympics will have taken place in Asia. We had the Winter Olympics in Korea in, in 2018, was supposed to have the Summer Olympics in 2020, now delayed to 2021. And then 2022 is supposed to be China's uh, Winter Games. 
uh, you know, and, and if the, the Japanese uh, Summer Olympics get canceled, I think that's going to have a larger implication and larger impact in terms of the role uh, of these geopolitical forces. Because I think the Olympics, whether it's the number of gold medals you win or medals that you win during the Cold War, uh, that now has transitioned to a U.S. versus China. And so I think Japan hosting and, and, and in that theater will be really important for all of us to watch. But I think we're all rooting for Japan and all excited about coming out of the current environment so we can celebrate the human spirit at these Olympics that will be really important to us. Well, Joss, thank you very much for joining us on the Profcast today. Arigato. And uh, we'll have to have you back on soon. It's always great to be back to, to Profcast and to talk about all these important issues. I hope that uh, it's helpful in some way and I look forward to continuing the conversation.